Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, it's Alison McGovern here, Chair of Progress. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a special episode in conversation between myself and Jonathan Powell. To introduce our guest this morning, I am of a generation that grew up under a Tory government that left our country without hope in many ways, whether it was public services or our place in the world. But most specifically, my childhood was marked by the conflict in Northern Ireland. Our guest this morning took a leading role in changing everything for the generation, as I did, that came of age in 1997. Jonathan Powell was Chief of Staff to Tony Blair from 1995 to 2007. And from 1997 to 2007, was our Chief British Negotiator on Northern Ireland. He probably knows more than almost anyone in the country about the problems that Theresa May is currently having on Brexit. So ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce Jonathan Powell. To open up, I mean, we've all woken up to the news this morning that reveals the severity of the problem that Theresa May faces. As Hillary said, Northern Ireland, it's not a side issue. This is central. Just tell us why you think Theresa May has got herself in this mess. Well, Theresa May's objective the whole way through has been to put off the difficult decisions that she faces on Brexit as a whole and in Northern Ireland in particular. Because if she confronts any of those problems, she loses part of her coalition of support. She either loses the DUP or she loses the pro-Brexit MPs or she loses the pro-European ones that are left in the Conservative Party. So the aim has constantly been to put off controversial decisions. And the problem with what the Commission have done today in putting forward a legal text is they have confronted her with those problems now. And she now has to face up to dealing with them. Not necessarily today, because as the government have been stressing, the document put forward today is the Commission proposal for the draft treaty, exit treaty. It's not uh, the final word. It then needs to go to the Council in March, needs to be agreed at the Council, and then it needs to be negotiated with the British government. But what it does by putting the December agreement into legal text is forces her to face up to those very, very difficult decisions. 
In the December agreement, in the bit on Northern Ireland, a 15-page agreement, she made a series of contradictory promises. She promised to the Irish government that there would be no hard border between North and South. She promised to the DUP there would be no border between the rest of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, no border in the Irish Sea. She promised to the Brexiteers that we would leave the single market and the customs union. She promised to the EU that if there was no other way of avoiding a hard border, regulatory divergence uh, would remain between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which effectively means remaining within the single market and the customs union. In other words, she used something we use in the Good Friday Agreement, which is constructive ambiguity. In the Good Friday Agreement, we opted for constructive ambiguity on the decommissioning of weapons. We put in language that the Republicans thought meant one thing, and the unionists thought meant another, and we got ourselves into real trouble. Got us through the agreement, but it came back to haunt us very rapidly. We started losing unionist support for the agreement, uh, and eventually we had to confront the issue in 2003, and luckily uh, the IRA moved then to decommission its weapons when confronted by that. She now faces, how do I actually deal with this problem? The Commission has made this so acute by concentrating on the fallback option. The government have put forward two conceivable other ways out of the problem of a hard border. Now, first is uh, that they say that the trade agreement, the deep and whatever it's called, trade agreement between um, the UK and EU will be such that there will be no border between the whole of the UK and the EU. Therefore, the issue of a border between Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland is moot. There won't be any border because there'll be no border anywhere. That is patently nonsense. So the Commission is not taking that very seriously. The second answer that they have put forward is that we can solve this problem technologically, that they can be some clever system that I think Boris Johnson was trying to allude to in his joke yesterday about congestion charging, that somehow by putting things in cars, we can remove the need for a border. This is also nonsense and actually revealed as nonsense some time ago by a leaked report from the Irish Inland Revenue that set out exactly why this could not work. And it's been described by the EU as magical thinking. And perhaps most conclusively of all, the British government in over a year of espousing this idea has not been able to come up with a single practical way in which this could work. So I think one can really rule out those two other options, which takes you back to what the EU has put forward today, which is the only way to do this is for Northern Ireland to remain in the customs union. But that is not enough because there is also the issue of regulations. The French government, for example, is deeply concerned about what would happen to phytosanitary standards, to other uh, forms of standards, and therefore you effectively have to have Northern Ireland remain in the uh, single market as well as the customs union. Now, obviously, the problem that that raises, particularly because they apparently, according to RTE, have in this document arrangements for joint EU-UK customs teams to inspect things coming from the UK. They don't say where they'll be, but there will be these joint customs teams. That effectively puts a border right down the Irish Sea, which is not entirely to the liking of the DUP. And the DUP this morning and last night have been threatening as a result to pull their support for Theresa May. So do you, to- do you think the DUP, I mean, in your experience, do you think the DUP, are they persuadable? I mean, is that a stupid question? Because I think people in British politics yeah. have, com- have completely lost touch with the personalities and the style and the nature of Northern Irish politics. Do you think the DUP in the end will support Theresa May because they're conservatives, like she's a conservative? Or do you think actually what matters to them is the integrity of Northern Ireland's position within the union and the Tory party is you know, immaterial in comparison? It, it, is, it is the latter. 
I mean, it might have been different had Ian Paisley still been alive and leaving, leading the party. I do remember Ian Paisley coming into Downing Street during the foot and mouth crisis uh, when cows were not allowed to move from Northern Ireland across the border into the Republic. And he wanted that to be possible. And he came and he banged the table in the cabinet room and said, our people may be British, but our cows are Irish. Uh, and so you might have got a more pragmatic approach from Ian Paisley because he might have been able to carry the party. But this party, with a weak leader, uh, who only just survived a crisis a year ago, uh, which is out of government in, in Northern Ireland, not able to profit from the billion they've stolen from the Exchequer because they can't uh, actually get into government to spend it, is in a position where they find it very hard to make compromises. As a result, I think there's very little chance of them making compromises. That's why they pulled down the first compromise, if you remember, leading up to the December agreement. That was pulled down by the DUP. Theresa May decided to bounce them at the last minute on the final compromise in December by calling them up very late in the day and not showing them anything before, but very late in the day, confronting them with a choice, pull down the government or go along with this ambiguous agreement. Now she faces a not ambiguous agreement and she's going to have a lot of trouble with them. They won't pull it down now, obviously, because the government will simply say, well, we're not agreeing to this. We're not going to allow the EU to split the United Kingdom. So they will get away with it for now. But there's a deadline on this and the deadline is March. What the government had hoped was that they could have an ambiguous enough agreement in March that they could move on, say we've left the EU, we've signed the divorce agreement, we're outside, and now we'll deal with all the controversial issues during the two-year transition period. That was her hope because that's the only way she can keep together this disparate coalition. And that's her problem, that when you set three contradictory objectives and then you're confronted by a legal text, which unfortunately can't be ambiguous, she's going to have to face up to the choice. Where does that leave you know us us in this room as as progressives? Hopefully, are, are you know people who care about the politics of Northern Ireland for its own sake, who worry about this division, who you know missing the no SDLP voices now in in Westminster, seeing the politics of Northern Ireland ever more divided, and this being at the heart of the future for our country. How could we have influence? What should we be arguing for? Well, I think firstly, we need to argue for the Good Friday Agreement, which seems a bizarre notion that you would have to do that at all. Until recently, the Good Friday Agreement has been accepted by nearly everyone as a, a good idea. Michael Gove, it is true, attacked it about 10 years ago. He wrote a pamphlet saying it was appeasement of the IRA, and in fact, the troubles had ended and we didn't need to have an agreement at all. So the Good Friday Agreement has not been popular on the right wing of the Tory party for quite some time. But the sudden discovery of the agreement by Owen Paterson and Kate Hoey, well, actually Kate, to be fair, being Northern Irish, has had an interest in it for a while, <coughs> and Daniel Hannan, who are not, neither Owen Paterson nor Daniel Hannan noted for their interest in the Good Friday Agreement until now, suddenly discovered that it's passed its sell-by date and should, should be gone, and they are actually attacking it. And then you have Boris Johnson in this leaked document saying there should be a hard border. And we do need to understand that if we do go for a hard border, this is not some sort of easy option that will somehow, Northern Ireland will just carry on as normal. The Good Friday Agreement was, is all about identity. We were trying to take identity out of politics in Northern Ireland. And the Good Friday Agreement did that very successfully. It's not a perfect agreement. Power sharing has plenty of disadvantages. Forced coalition is not a good thing in a democracy because it's very hard to throw the rascals out. On the other hand, if you look at the alternative of 70 years of one-party rule by the Protestants in Northern Ireland, that left the Catholics completely disenfranchised. David Trimble made a very good speech when he got the Nobel Prize talking about Catholics living in a cold house in Northern Ireland. And that's the problem. If we reimpose the border, then the identity reasserts itself. They can no longer feel Irish 
or British or both if they wish to. The border will be back again uh, in force. And that will undermine the root of the Good Friday Agreement. So I think the one thing that progressives could do is to say, Good Friday Agreement may not be perfect. But if you think that you can unilaterally breach this treaty, which, by the way, is a, a bilateral treaty registered at the UN, legally binding with the Irish government, if you think it's a good idea to breach a legally binding agreement with the Irish government, just as you're about to try and sign another legally binding agreement with the EU, including the Republic of Ireland, that's not a very good idea. Mm. And secondly, if you actually unilaterally breached the Good Friday Agreement and went back to one-party rule, I do think you could guarantee the Troubles would come back. I don't think the Troubles will come back just because there's a hard border. But if you actually breach the Good Friday Agreement, then you really would undermine all of that work. And I think that's something that progressives ought to be uh, talking to. I think they, they got away a little bit easily with what they said, these three Brexiteers. And there's a reason they've suddenly discovered the Good Friday Agreement. It's because they see it as an insuperable problem with their aim for a hard Brexit, which I don't think progressives should be in favour of anyway. Uh, and then Boris Johnson's joke and um, leaked memo also reveal what their real game is, which is to impose a hard border, which would be very serious for Northern Ireland going forward. You make a very good argument. Just just turning to uh, our, our Foreign Secretary, if we if we must, what would you say as a civil servant who worked with, you know, politicians at the highest level, you have somebody in that office who seems utterly incapable of understanding the basics of diplomacy. How do you approach a set of politicians who look off the rails? Someone summed it up rather well a while ago now, about nine months ago, a year ago maybe. They said that we always used to think that uh, Boris Johnson was a clever man masquerading as a fool. And we now discover there's actually a fool masquerading as a clever man masquerading as a fool. And I think that has been brought, brought, brought out by the comments that he's made. Uh, it's also interesting if you talk to my former colleagues in the Foreign Office, the, the diplomats. They rather enjoyed having this big beast come to be Foreign Secretary. They thought it was rather fun to have this comic act uh, turn up. And it's worn rather thin over the course of how long he's been there, a year or so that you get the same jokes again and again, and you get the same problem that he won't read his brief, he won't actually grasp what the issues are. You know, he turns up in Burma and starts reciting a Kipling poem of uh, not entirely good taste in the, uh, in the main religious shrine in, in Yangon. There is a bit of a problem having a joke as, a, uh, as foreign minister, particularly if you're going to have a joke as a foreign policy, which is, I'm afraid, where we're heading. As we've got onto broader foreign policy... We had this this week uh, an urgent question on, on Monday in the, in the House of Commons on Syria, given the situation there, hundreds of people slaughtered in recent days, getting up to half a million people dead since the beginning of the conflict. Now, what's the state of progressive values in the world? Do we now just ha- have to accept that basic rules of conflict have been torn up? No, we certainly don't have to accept that. You know, I, I now run a little charity that works on, set up that works on conflicts around the world, and we, we work in Syria. Uh, it is truly depressing. Uh, what's that? I mean, more than depressing, it's really tragic what's happening in Syria, and our ability to turn a blind eye to it is rather extraordinary. The problem goes a, a while back that if you set a red line for an issue like Syria and then you don't uphold that red line, it becomes apparent that you're never going to uphold a red line, and then anything can be done. So you can pass a resolution in the UN, even with uh, Russian support, calling for a ceasefire, and the Syrian regime and the Iranian militias will carry on massacring people, and no one is going to do anything about it. Uh, And if you end up in that kind of world, then uh, you must expect our values to be trampled on um, all over the place. You have to have the UN mean something. For the UN to mean something, it has to have some sort of force 
to back up its threats, red lines have to mean something. So if you have a United States that's opted out of our values, as it has in the current administration, and if you have the UK leaving the EU, which was the other pillar of our foreign policy, our views become less and less relevant. That doesn't mean to say we have to give up. It just means we need a coherent approach as progressives to how we can reinstall those values. Hopefully getting back into the EU, so we'd have one pillar of our foreign policy at least, hoping that the administration changes in the United States so we have a, can re-establish the transatlantic relationship so it has our other pillar of our foreign policy. And thirdly, that we can get our values back on the table uh, in international relations. We shouldn't give up. We have to fight for it. It's not a one-way movement. But at the moment, and Syria is a very good example of it, it's truly tragic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.